This is it, week one of our series called Close Encounters. People ask me all the time, like, how do you come up with this stuff? Well, sometimes, you know, what you do is you sit around in a room with a group of people and you start talking about, hey, what do you want to preach on, Todd? Then you start throwing out an idea like, man, I want to talk about like people who had these amazing encounters and experiences with God. And so you throw out a word like an encounter and then you then you're like, ooh, close encounters. And then you go find something spooky. And anyway, that's how this stuff it's, it's, it's really that simple. So, uh, we did want to like talk about this though. We, it was on my heart to say, man, you know, what's what, one of the things that I wish I could do, I wish I could take my experience with God and stick it into a bottle and just give it away. Like, I wish I could put it in the coffee, not even tell you, and you're just sipping on Jesus juice. You know, I, I wish, I wish you could, because that's, that's what close encounters are. If you look up close encounters, uh, like online, you just get a bunch of spooky alien stuff, right? That's what you're going to find. You can go do that later. Don't do it during the sermon. That'll distract me if I see you doing that. And, uh, I'm kidding. But, but anyway, that's what it is. And what these, these people have is they have these, and now I don't, I don't think I believe in aliens. I don't, we won't raise hands and see who does and who doesn't. Cause it might be weird, but I'm not, I don't believe in aliens. I don't, maybe they're there. Maybe they're not, but like, I've never had any type of weird, but if you go to close encounters on the website, you have all these people that say, no, no, I experienced an alien. And, uh, you know, maybe they're just high. I don't know. But the, the point is that they had this experience, and then they're convinced of this experience. And so that's what I feel like it is when you have a real experience with God, though. Because I understand why I believe in God purely from an intellectual and philosophical and scientific standpoint. Like, I, I know all that stuff, and I get it, and that's, that's, that reinforces my faith. I even recognize, too, that part of my faith is very relational, that it's connected to maybe where I was raised and who I was around and people that influenced me and things like that. But, but what really is a part of, of my faith in God is my own personal experience. Because if you ever, have you ever had an experience where you're like, you're going on and on and on. And then they're looking at you like, I don't, I don't get it. And then what do you say? You're like, I guess you had to be there. And that's sometimes how your personal experience with God is. You're like, I guess, I guess, I just guess you had to be there. And people can't talk you out of your experience. You ever notice that? Like, this is why I always tell you, whenever you share your faith with other people, you don't try to like build an argument. Who cares about an argument now? And now we're potentially just being obnoxious. You just tell your story because they can argue with your arguments, but they can't argue with your story. Your story is just your story because it's your personal experience with God. And we see this throughout scripture that people have incredible over the top experiences with God. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is look at these incredible experiences and just kind of glean from them. Because what I believe is, is that what God did in them back then well, God's wanting to do the same thing in you today, right now. Can I get an amen? So we want to experience God. As a matter of fact, this is what the Bible says about Moses, that this is the type of life I think you, you and I ought to, to aspire to and lead to, is that it says that Moses in the book of Exodus, that the Lord would speak to him face to face. Like, I don't even know what that looks like, but Moses had this type of relationship where he would just talk to God as, as a man would just speak with his friend, that's the type of close encounter that you want to have with God. As a matter of fact, Paul later draws on this idea in the book of Corinthians, and basically he uses this idea of being face-to-face as he encourages us as Christians to do the same thing. So it says this in Corinthians, and, and this is the, the message, I don't normally use this, but it's this kind of like paraphrasing of Scripture, if you could. This is... So Whenever though, listen to this, whenever though they turn to face God like Moses did, remember that face to face thing, God removes the veil and there they are face to face. See, what God has done through Christ, especially is he's taking down the barriers that stand in between 
you and God. He goes, no, 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 there's a veil. There's a barrier between you and God, but Jesus has taken that away. And so what happens is you recognize that now God is a living personal presence, not just a piece of chiseled stone, not an idol or a statue or a thing or a temple. No, none of that. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation, that, that's a fancy way for saying this. All the times you always thought that like God was about the rules and if I followed the rules, I was in. And if I didn't, I was out. Or if I followed the rules, God would like me. And if I didn't, God would be mad at me. He goes, that all disappears. It actually starts to become ridiculous. It's, it's, it's that old, that's not how God is actually engaging with people. That's the old constricting legislation. It's obsolete. We are free of it. All of us, nothing between us and God. And so if you keep, keep reading here, it says this, it says our faces shine with the brightness of of his face. And so we are transfigured much like Jesus was. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become we become like him. Because the walk away is this, is that when you experience God, it changes you. You, you are not the same anymore. Something about, you've got a glow about you. You've got a thing about you. You've got a passion about you. You've got a hunger about you. And sometimes when you go to communicate that to other people, they're like, I don't get it. And you might have to say, well, I guess... I guess you just had to be there. But I'm telling you, what we want to do is experience God in such a way that it radically changes who we are, and we are never the same after that moment in time. And so over these next few weeks, I mean, there's a crazy story of where Moses talks to a burning bush, where Jacob wrestles with an angel. Isaiah has a vision, which is, I think, a dream while you're awake. I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy encounters that people have where they experience God and are forever changed. And today I want to look at one about a guy named Abraham. Everybody say Abraham. Now, if you were a kid and you grew up in church, remember the song? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father. Yeah, we all know that song. So anyway, if you did not grow up going to church, you totally missed out on that. That's, that's what you really missed out on. And so, um, stinks for you. So, but, but in this story, though, it's an incredible experience where, again, it forever changes the trajectory of Abraham's life. And so we read the story with me and we're just going to kind of talk through the story and glean from it. There's four big ideas that come out of it. It says this, it says sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now you got to remember the author is writing for a purpose and he lets you in on the very first statement that like, Hey, just so you know, this is a setup. Like if you read this story and you didn't know it was a setup, it would come off almost as cruel or crazy or ridiculous. God would seem really weird, but he lets you know, the author lets you know, hey, this is just a test. Write along the story with me. Are you ready? So God says to him, so Abraham hears a voice, a voice from heaven. Abraham, here I am, he replied, because that's what you say when a voice speaks to you, apparently. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, how many know God digs down deep? Your son, the only one you got. The one you really, really like. You love him. Take Isaac and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him. Excuse me. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain and I will, that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Can you imagine the conversation you have with your wife about that? Hey, where are you going? I don't know. A mountain over there somewhere. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to kill the kid. What? Now, there's, there is a funny thing in, rabbinic, in the Talmud, the rabbinical teaching, the commentary of the Old Testament. It said that after this incident that Sarah didn't speak to Abraham anymore. <laughs> so think about that, wives. Um, so, yeah, yeah. 
you sacrifice your only son on a mountain that I'll, I'll tell you when you get there. So Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and, of course, his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will what? Worship. He, he referred to what they were doing as worship. We will worship and then we, everybody say we. We will come back to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Now, if you ever see any like paintings of this, because, you know, again, people paint stories in scripture. They always show Isaac as being like this little boy. Isaac wasn't a little boy. He couldn't have been. Right. How else do you load the kid up with wood? Right. And that's the way it ought to be, parents. Give them kids some chores. Go mow the lawn. Do your own dishes. You know, load up the wood on them kids. And so they, so Isaac is many times thought of, oh, Abraham's sacrificing this little boy or this little baby. No, 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 no. This kid was big enough to carry his own wood up the mountain. So scholars believe that he was anywhere from 15 to 37. Which is has fascinating implications because what, what Abraham recognized was is that we're going off to worship and Isaac... There's something funny that comes out here just a second. We got to read it and it'll make more sense. Watch this. So remember, Abraham says to his servants, stay here. We're going to worship. We'll come back to you. He takes the offering and places it on his son, Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went off together. Isaac, this is like where, you know, like the kids paying attention. Isaac spoke up and said to his dad, um, dad, yes, my son, uh, we got fire. Uh, we got wood, but there is, where's the lamb for this burnt offering? He's paying attention. He's like, hmm, uh, I see we've got the wood. I see we got the fire. Uh, there's no offering, dad. See, here's what you need to know. Like Isaac willingly goes along with this story. Like Isaac could have resisted. Because I don't know if you know this. How old was Abraham at this point in time? Does anybody know? He's over a hundred years old. So even if the kid is only 15 years old, here's what I know about you when you're 15. You're spry. You know, you're just quick. You're nimble. And when you're 100, God bless you. I love you, but you're, you're no spring chicken anymore, right? And, and, if, and if Isaac wanted to get away, he could just be like, can't catch me, can't catch me. You know, like a, he, he could have probably beat up his dad. Because how many know when you're like that? Does anybody remember that when you're a kid? Like my dad was this big farm hand, big old hands, could beat me up, and we'd wrestle, and I'd always lose. And he just was bigger and stronger than me. But then I go off to college, and I remember the first time I ever came back from college, you know, you, you know, you put on a little weight, you start hitting the gym a little bit, and all of a sudden, Dad wants to wrestle. Oh, no, it's over now. Because you know what Dad used to say to me? Dad, because we'd wrestle, I'd, I'd get mouthy, and he said, boy, your alligator mouth is overloading your hummingbird butt. And then he would lay it on me. I came back from college, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, you want some now? I think your alligator mouth is overloading your hummingbird butt. And that's when I beat up my dad. In love, I mean, it was like friendly beat up. But he never wrestled me after that. That was over. Then it was like, oh, I'm too old. Yeah, you are. So my point is, is that Isaac could have easily run away or just beat up his dad. He didn't. He willingly went along with this. So let's keep reading the story. I've been distracted. Um, so Abraham responds, well, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place, 
God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out of him or called out to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know. Everybody say, now I know. Now I know. So God, remember how it said this is that God was going to test Abraham in the very beginning. And now you see God responding saying, don't, no, 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 I was just messing. Now I know. And now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its thorns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. It was actually a compound, two Hebrew words, Jehovah, and then it would be the provider part. So the Lord, our provider. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is a fascinating story. Again, you could see why Sarah would not speak to him after this anymore. He's like, you took my kid, my only kid. You got to remember they waited 25 years. They were promised to have a kid. In their culture, having children would have been one of the most important aspects of life, one of the most honorable things of life. As a matter of fact, the way that many of us think about success is, is how much we accumulate or, or what status we acquire for them. It, it, they took the most amount of pride, not in what they accomplished, but in what their kids accomplished. And their ability to pass on a name and a legacy was the most important thing in their culture. And so for them, they prayed and prayed and waited and waited and waited 25 years to have this kid. And then God says, I need your son, your only son. And they take him to, funny enough, the place where they take him to, the Mount of the Lord, this place called Moriah, this is later where Solomon would build a temple. Like this is an incredible, holy, special place, a unique place, and God is setting it up even in advance to say, this is going to be a holy place, and I'm going to do something so special here. And so a big, big four questions that I think God reveals to you that you have to glean from as you read this story The first thing that you have to recognize is this, is that for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, although we think it's strange, unless you have a teenager, um, unless, because you know, like, it's like, I guarantee you, like, if you're a young mother, you're like, no, my gosh. Yeah, wait till you as a teenager, you're like, "Eh, maybe I could see it. It could do it. We could do it. So just depends on where you're at in life. Somebody say that's true. Um, I speak the truth anyway. So, so yeah, like, like this radical request was actually not so radical, not in Abraham's day. See, it says that Abraham was from a land called the Ur of the Chaldees. And you know what they did there? They participated in child sacrifice. They worshiped a God named Moloch. And even in Canaan, they did this. As a matter of fact, there's a story in first Kings chapter three, where the king of Moab is battling another nation. And as they're losing, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll sacrifice my son so that we can win the battle because there was no greater gift that you could offer the gods than to give your son. So child sacrifice was actually kind of common and normal in their day. And so it wasn't, as a matter of fact, if you were living in their day and you read this story, the part that you would have thought odd was not that God asked for your son. You would have thought it odd that God said, no, don't worry about it. It's not needed. That would have been the crazy part of the story. And so I think one of the questions that you have to ask yourself is this, is will you love me like they love their God? I think that's what God's saying. Hey, will you love me 
the way they love their God because they have incredible sacrifice. They're willing to go to extreme measures. They're willing to do whatever it takes to honor their God. What about me? Well, you love me the same way because we live in a culture where people just have different idols. The names change, but the root is still the same. We still worship at the altar of power and sex and money. Like nothing's changed. We just change the name and the label that we put on it. But we go to extreme measures for the things that we want in life. And I think God's just saying, hey, look, man, people around you are doing radical things to get what they want in life. Will you take radical measures to come and worship and honor me? As a matter of fact, what you really see from the story is, is that actually Abraham had turned his son into an idol. You know, remember he prayed for 25 years. He waited for this kid. And this is where you're challenged because some of you know this, what this is like. Sometimes you, your, your own motives are challenged. You're like, wait a minute. Am I seeking God because of who God is? Or am I seeking God because of the stuff that God gives? Am I seeking God because of just that's because he's worthy to be worshiped? Or do I seek God because how I benefit because of what I get out of it? And you got to remember like, some of us, we just use God as a means to another end. And God's like, no, no, I'm not a means to an end. I, I am the end. See, at some point, Abraham, I don't know if he was seeking God, but he was seeking God for a son, which is not all bad until the... See, the, the problem would be this, because it's not, certainly not wrong to love your kids. But I think what Abraham was recognizing is it's, it's, it's not that I shouldn't love my kid. It's that I love my kid too much in comparison to the way that I love God, or I love God too little. I've actually made this thing that I wanted in life, I've made it the most important thing, and I made God a means to that, and I've missed it. And by and this is what the test was. God was ultimately saying, hey, look, man, if you do this, then I know. I'm actually first in your life. And here's, here's the deal. When God is first in your life, you get all the other things that come with it. Sometimes when you put the idol first, you actually end up missing God and then you lose it. Cause you've seen this with parents before. Speaking of parents and Abraham and Isaac and that whole deal. Sometimes you, you do this, you put your kids first and in wanting to put them first, you actually hurt them. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Sometimes you think all I want my kids to have is all the things that I didn't have when I was a kid. So then what you do is, is you become a workaholic so that you can provide. But the very thing that you thought you were providing is the very thing that they didn't need. Because what they didn't need was more stuff. They just needed more of their dad. Or you find them, no, I need to have them in this activity, in this event, in this project, in this sport, in this thing. And actually by trying to give them, it's almost like squeezing something till it jumps out of your hand. And then all of a sudden, because you don't go to church on Sunday morning because you got them in every umpteen activity, you're like, oh no, now I've actually hurt their future. They actually have walked away from God. But it, why? Because your motive was simply that you wanted to put them first, but kids shouldn't go first. Marriage is the same way. Like, like your marriage ought to be more important than, than your children. Because the greatest gift that you can give your kids is what a great husband and what a great wife looks like. Because we've got a generation of people that don't know what it's like to be, or don't know what it looks like to be a great husband or to be a great wife. And so we keep creating this incredible, painful divorce cycle. Why? Because we keep, we have families that keep putting kids above the marriage. The greatest thing you can give your kids is what a great marriage looks like. So that they'll grow up and engage in an incredible relationship. I mean, it got quiet up in this Methodist church. Man, y'all just, let's move on. That's a, okay. So I think, I think God, God sometimes says, no, no, it's not that you can't love your job and you shouldn't love your kids or you shouldn't love certain people. You shouldn't love, it's that you shouldn't love them more than you love me. Because if you put me first, actually everything 
falls into its proper place and everything now has alignment and that produces incredible peace. That produces happiness. And when you start putting other things above God, you end up with turmoil and carnage. So will you, will you love me the way that they love their God? Will you go to like radical means to say, God, no, you're first and foremost in my life? Here's a second question. It's just simply this. Will you trust me? That's got to be the big question, right? Because like if, if, again, if God spoke to you and said, hey, take your kid, you'd be like, what? No, thank you. You're a weird God. Um, but God's saying, no, no, I just need you to trust me because this is what Abraham shows. Remember when he said, hey, me and the boy, we're going to worship, but we'll come back. How did Abraham know? I don't know. I think he just believed that, that God is not cruel or mean. He's actually gracious and holy. And he knew that the holiness of God said that the sacrifice for sin is important, but that the grace of God, the goodness of God was there too. And so like he just, he just knew and he says, no, no, I'll trust you. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how it'll be. He even tells the kid, he goes, Hey, look, I don't know where the offering is yet. It's supposed to be you right now. Shh. But I believe God will provide for himself an offering. And so you got to say, well, you know, do, do I really trust God? Because we have the temptation that we have in our culture is this, is we're very um, cerebral about our faith. And I think that's bad. See, what we do is, is we get into faith and we believe faith is the belief in the existence of a thing. And that's not the way they talked about faith. They would have never thought about faith as the intellectual acknowledgement of the existence of anything. They would have said, do you trust in? This is, as a matter of fact, the, the Hebrew word that they would have used for faith. Let's get Hebrew. Let's emunach. You got to, everybody say that, emunach. And you got to put the end on to sound cool, to sound Hebrew. Emunach. It was, as a matter of fact, the root word is this, is, is, is amen. Like that's where the idea of like, amen, so be it. I trust you, God. Like this, it was not, or we could say it like this. It is more like faithfulness than a static state of mind. That's what faith is. This is why James later says, he says something so radical. He said, you say you have faith, but you don't have anything to back it up. He goes, even demons believe. Like, like the, the, the intellectual faith in God is not what God is looking for. He is looking, or we, we can say it like this. It is more trust in than belief that. I'm not saying, do you believe that God exists? Uh, who cares? Even That's what James said. Even demons believe. That doesn't matter. Do you trust in God? I don't want you to say, do I believe that God is powerful? Do you trust in his power? I don't want you to intellectually acknowledge that God is love, although that's true. I want you to trust in his love. Because when you start trusting in his love and trusting in his power and trusting in his word and trusting in his commands, and tr- it, it, it requires something so active. It requires legitimate trust. And so that's what I think is really going on here. And at the end of it, this is where God says, well, now I know. Now I know. Now I know. Now I know that you fear me. As a matter of fact, this is again, James says it like this. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Meaning he, he didn't just say, God, I believe you, but I'm not doing that. No, no, he, he actively stepped out in, in trust. You see that his faith and his actions were actually working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by intellectual faith alone. So like, 
what James was saying, what Abraham was saying, is that I don't want a bunch of Christ followers to sit around and say, well, I believe, I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that Jesus. No, no, I want you to trust in Jesus. I want this active following, this active surrendering, this active submitting, this active trusting. That's what God was in essence saying. And then when you do, you're like, now I know. He's looking at you, now I know. Now I know you trust me and now I know that you can trust me and I can trust you as well. Which leads to the next question, which is this, because this is a fascinating element to the story. You ready for this? This is where it kind of takes an interesting turn. James said that because of this, that Abraham was called the friend of God. Everybody say friend. Nobody gets that in the Old Testament. Abraham's the only guy that said is the friend of God. And so I think the question becomes this, is there's a question laced in the story that says, hey, will you be my friend? Because here's what I believe about friendship. If you think about the greatest friends that you've ever had in life, there's a bond, isn't there? Like, think about, like, the people that you just connect to. You don't have to force it. There's something really, really natural and organic about great friendship. It's just a natural bond that flows. Because you can't just show up to people and be like, hey, I'm going to be your friend. Right? That'd be weird. Like, no, you're a stalker. Get away from me. And so the friendship is so organic and so natural and so beautiful that way. But but dig down deeper and say, what is it that really made that so natural? There's some type of gettability, right? Like they just get you. And I get them and they get me. And sometimes we can just sit in silence and it's not weird. And sometimes we say things and they just know what I'm saying. And sometimes I'm just thinking things and they know what I'm thinking. They just get me. And there's some gettability to it. I think what happened is, is that God invited Abraham into the grand story. See, for a man to sacrifice his only son is incredibly painful and turmoil and gut-wrenching. And there's loss and there's fear and there's all these mixed emotions. And I think God is saying, you know what? I'm going to have to trust Abraham to be like the father of all faith. I need somebody who gets me. Because one day, I'm going to march my son up onto a mountain. And I'm going to make him carry the wood. And he's going to have to be sacrificed. And the pain that that will cause me, I would like somebody in this world to get me. I'd like somebody to know what it's like to be me. Because if I, because then I would have a friend. I wouldn't just have some like mindless subject. Some mindless follower. I'd have somebody that says, no, God, I get it. I know what it's like. See, this is the thing about God, too. God has such incredible gettability. This is what, this is what makes even the person of Christ. It, it, the Bible says that he was tempted on all points, just as we are. But he just didn't sin. But because of that, we can boldly come to God. Because God's never like, oh, yeah, you did that today, huh? Way to go. God's never sitting there judging you for like, oh, yeah, you couldn't stand up to the test. Today. See, the Bible says God's been tested on all points. God knows what it's like. Because the worst things in the world sometimes are the, are the painful things. Sometimes you're like, you're like, hey, somebody rejected me. Like somebody that I truly love rejected me. God's like, yeah, I get that. I get that. I know what that's like to be fully rejected. You're like, yeah, you know what? My parents, they just didn't believe in me. God's like, yeah, I get that. I know it's like people not to believe in you. I could get that to people that doubt you. I get, hey, you know what? When Jesus, again, when Jesus was on the cross, you know where all of his disciples were? Gone. In his hour of greatest needs, they'd all abandoned him. He goes, I get abandoned. I know, I know what it's like. Because one of them traded me in for a bag of silver. One of them was cursing and denied me three times. Well, the, the nine of them just ran. I got one kid here. That's all I got. I got one disciple left. That's it. I, I get it. I get it. As a matter of fact, this is the story of Hosea. 
Hosea is such a weird story. Uh, it's this little old prophet book in the back of the Old Testament, and it's the weirdest story. It's about a prophet who is told to marry a prostitute. And again, it's this allegory for, I want you to know what it's like to love someone that won't love you back. I want you to know what it's like to love someone who strays and wanders, because that's what it's like to be me. And I think God invites Abraham into this grand human story to say, I want you to be my friend, because I want you to get what it's like, because one day I'm going to do the very thing that I'm asking of you. Which leads us to the last question, and we'll kind of close on this, is this, is, is can you see Jesus in the story now? Yeah, you you can see it now. Like Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament in so many unique and subtle and fascinating ways. Um, I I don't want to get into all the different ones, but there's these different ways that Jesus kind of glimpses himself into the story. But this is one of them. So you need to see the parallels of the story as a story about Jesus. Because here's the here's the deal. Both Jesus and Isaac were announced by an angel. Both of them involved a miraculous birth. Both were offered as sacrifices by their father. Both events happened at the same location. Both of them arrived to their death on a donkey. Both arose on the third day. Both carried the wood on which they were to be sacrificed. Both faced their death voluntarily. And do you remember what they originally said to Abraham? Said, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What happens through Jesus? All nations are blessed. And the son lives on. It's the story of Christ. So it's this incredible encounter where Abraham experiences the presence of God. Sees the angel, sees, hears the voice, experiences even the pain and the fear and the anxiety. He, he, he's into the whole thing and he walks away so different. If you've ever experienced God, you should be able to walk away. I remember, I was in, I remember I was in college and if you've ever had your first, your first love, that's the worst emotional pain, right? When you had your, oh, I was my first love. I was in college and I had like a couple little girlfriends throughout high school and whatever, but I was like, you know, I didn't really love any of them. I had this college sweetheart and I loved her and we had a relationship for about a year and a half and then we broke up. It was kind of an ugly breakup. And, and I remember, I remember the pain of that breakup because I remember I'd just gone through uh, I just finished up two years of school when this happened. And I remember at the end of that, I remember being in such pain and turmoil and mess and confusion. And I remember sensing I was closer to God in that moment than I was in two years of Bible college. Because I was like, God, this is what it's like to be you. This is what it's like to love someone who won't love you back. And now I am connected to the heart of God. See, when you experience God, it changes who you are. We're not talking about head knowledge. I'm not trying to get you just to to memorize certain arguments or ideas or have certain theological beliefs. I'm trying to get you to come face to face with God, heart to heart with God, emotion to emotion with God, and invite God into your life in such a way. They're like, no, no. Every one of my experiences, I invite God in so that I can see his face, so that God can walk me through it, so that I can experience his love and mercy, and I can walk out changed. I don't want you to just acknowledge the existence of God. How ridiculous. I want you to see him face to face and walk with him. Would you bow your heads today? Oh, maybe one of the coolest aspects of this story is that now that we see Christ in the story, 
the way it happens at first is that Abraham sacrifices his son and God looks at him and says, well, now I know that you trust me. But now that we look at the cross and we look at God and him sacrificing his son, now we in return say the same thing. God, now I know. Now I know. Now I'm convinced that you love me. God sacrificing his own son on our behalf gives us the certainty. Well, now I know. Now I know that God loves me. So God, I pray for these people. God, I pray, God, that we would walk out of this place and constantly be on the lookout for your presence in the big things and in the little things, God. May we experience you. May we see you. May we get connected face-to-face and heart-to-heart, emotion-to-emotion, God, as we walk with you and experience you, God. Would you pour into our lives, change us from the inside out, rearrange us, God, so that we may never be the same again. Lord, that is our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap today?